If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis in chapter 17. I was going to read the whole of the chapter, but then I decided to break it into three parts, because it's such an important chapter. Thirteen years have now passed since the birth of Ishmael. If you remember, we talked about Ishmael last time. And it seems that Abraham has resigned himself to be content with Ishmael being the son of promise. Remember the promised blessing that came through Abraham's line? Which may be a surprising statement to make. You may, you may even be asking, well, how do you know that? And I'll show you just in a few moments how I know that. But God had other plans. And this chapter is about the personal, spiritual renewal of Abraham in this encounter with Almighty God. The context of Genesis 17 is Genesis 15 and Genesis 16. In Genesis 15, God confirmed his covenant which he first made when he drew Abraham from out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. And he confirmed that in Genesis 15 in the most striking way as the Lord God himself took the position of a vassal and he walked between the pieces of the slain animals Basically saying to Abraham, Abraham, if I am unfaithful in fulfilling my promises of my covenant to you, be it done to me as we have done to these animals. Abraham, I'm calling a curse down on myself. So certain you should be that I will bring about the promise. That was the certainty of God's promise to Abraham, Genesis 15. But in Genesis 16, Abraham's faith began to waver. And Sarai prevailed upon Abraham to seek an answer to God's promises. They did it their way. In Hagar, Sarai's maidservant, the Egyptian. And Abraham conceived a child by Hagar. But the child was not appointed by God to be the heir of the covenant promise. So those two stories, Genesis 15, Genesis 16, juxtapose God's awesome covenant. And Abraham's failing of faith sets the context for our reading this morning. And as we come to Genesis 17, we'll read the first eight verses only, we see the prelude to God giving his covenant sign of the covenant promises in this great passage. Let's, let's pray as we come to God's word because it is holy ground. O God of Abraham, we praise you. Ancient of days, God of love, you are the great I am, by earth and heaven confessed. We bow and bless your holy name, forever blessed. O God of Abraham, speak to us this morning, we pray. Give us ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us hear God's holy word. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be 
Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired and inerrant word, and may he write his eternal truth upon our hearts. So in the wake of the Hagar Ishmael soap opera, the Hagar Ishmael saga, we see Abraham, the man of God, wavering in his faith, stuck, we might say, in a spiritual decline, almost ceasing to look for God's grand fulfilment of his promise. And Genesis 17, 1 to 8, tells us the story of what God did for Abraham, Abraham right in the moment of his need, when Abraham's faith was at a low ebb. The passage can be broken into two parts. One and three. One to three, we have a picture of God coming to Abraham and reviving his faith by showing Abraham again who he, God, is by reminding Abraham again that Abraham has entered into covenant with the Lord God. So that's the first part. And then four to eight, we see God renaming Abraham, renaming him Abraham, and repeating to him and expanding for him the promises of the covenant. So see verses one to three as the prelude, and verses four to eight, the promises. So the prelude, God appears to Abraham. The way that God revives our faith is, be, is by revealing himself to us in his word. There's something that one of my sons said to me this week that really struck me. The way that God revives our faith is by revealing himself to us in his word. That's the way that he revives our faith, by revealing himself to us in his word. Now let me just remind you about Abraham's spiritual state. Just try and imagine this for a minute, because I, I try to put myself, if, you, if, if I could, into Abraham's shoes. He's borne the name Abraham for many years, and he probably bore that name to great embarrassment, because the name Abraham meant exalted father. So it meant exalted father. So just picture what Abraham would have endured for 70 odd years of his adult life. Just imagine someone journeying from Mesopotamia to Egypt and they stop by Abraham's tent. And Abraham invites them in, extends hospitality. And Orientals show respect for one another by asking questions. And questions which we might think of as being a little too personal. Questions about your family, questions about matters that are intensely personal. So you can almost picture the dinner conversation one evening around you know, the roast lamb or whatever it was. Abraham, what an interesting name. That, that means exalted father in your language. So how many children do you have? None. And how many times did Abraham answer that question in over 70 years? It's almost a cruel joke. How many children, Abraham? None. And then at the age of 86, he had a child by Hagar, 
And though there is tension in Abraham's household, eventually the Lord intervenes, Hagar and Ishmael return, and some modicum of domestic tranquility is restored. And Abraham is comfortable now with the idea that possibly, maybe, Ishmael is the one through whom God will fulfil his promise. And you can understand it because finally he has an answer to that question. The poor man, when he's asked next time, Abraham, how many children do you have? He can finally say, I have one son. Now, no, now, no doubt there would have been concealed smiles when his guests went back to their tent, thinking this man hasn't got seven sons and many daughters. He just has the one son. How can he be called exalted father? But at least he can say one. And in verse 18, even after God has said all the things he's going to say to him in the first 17 verses, Abraham's first response to God's word in verse 18 is, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God tells him all the things that he is going to do. And Abraham's, Abraham's response is still, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham had become contented with the merest of blessings, almost ceasing to look for further favour, 99 years old. And we may also estimate, and this is based on chapter 16 as well, that there would have been increased tension in Abraham's domestic situation. For after the birth of Ishmael, and after the problems that ensued between Hagar and Sarai, remember that? Abraham and Sarai would have spent many years together bearing their reproach simultaneously for having no children. And imagine the servants talking in their quarters. Well, whose problem is it? Is it Abraham or is it Sarai? What's the problem? And after Hagar bears Sarai's child, Sarai, Abraham's child, Sarai alone must bear that reproach. And you can only guess what tensions that would have brought between Abraham and Sarai. And we have a visible description of them in Genesis 16. The rest is for us to read between the lines. Now Sarai must bear the pain alone. It seems she is the problem. So here we are, Genesis 17. Abraham, the exalted father, with one son Ishmael, within whom his hopes have found a resting place. And John Calvin says, Abraham being contented with his only son Ishmael, ceased desire any other seed. And Genesis 17, 18 confirms John Calvin's not overstating the case for Abraham. Robert S. Candlish, the great Scottish minister, said he had got, as it has been well said, if not the very thing promised, something like it. So he almost ceased to look or long for more. In such a state, how great the need of such a revival as Abraham now experiences receiving a repetition of the original call as a preparation for the renewal of the covenant. That's the context of the visitation of God. That's the situation that Abraham is in. The Lord appears to him and he says, Abraham, I am God Almighty. That's how God reveals himself. Spiritual renewal begins with the sight of God. And when we see his character... When we see who he is, as he reveals himself in his word, a process has begun, a process of the revival of the soul. 
Look at what the Lord says to Abraham. He says, I am El Shaddai. I am God, the God of power. And that term, El Shaddai, is used over and over in the Old Testament, in Ruth, in Job, especially in Genesis. The might, the power of God, his all-sufficiency, his self-sufficiency. Have you given up hope in El Shaddai? Or is your hope in the God of might and power? Derek Kidner says, in Genesis, this name for God tends to be matched to situations where God's servants are hard-pressed and are needing assurance. Is that you today? That you feel pressed from all sides? That you need assuring? Abraham is, and the Lord says to him, Abraham, I am El Shaddai. James Boyce tells of the letterhead of a Chinese evangelist called Leland Wong. And he had three scripture verses on his letterhead to bear testimony to what he thought about his God. The first scripture verse was Joshua 10.13, the sun stood still. The second scripture verse was 2 Kings 6, verse 6, the iron did swim. The third scripture verse was Psalm 48.14, this God is our God. And James Boyce says, by the juxtaposition of these verses, Leland Wong affirmed that his God does the impossible. The sun stood still, the iron did swim, and this God is our God. That was his God. And that is precisely what God is saying to Abraham in his moment of need. And I am sure that is what God would say to you in your moment of need. Abraham, I am El Shaddai. I can do anything. God revealed himself to Abraham and then commanded Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. That reminds us of the mutual responsibilities of the covenant. God's grace, God's grace initiates, brings Abraham the promises and secures the promises for him. But the covenant is mutual. There are mutual obligations and responsibilities. Abraham is to walk before the Lord and be blameless. And what does that mean? Sometimes we get the wrong impression from that. It means that Abraham is to live under the conscious gaze of God to walk before him. Abraham is to walk in such a way that the holy and heavenly father can look on him and see one who is holy. He is to live under the gaze of God and to be blameless. And that doesn't mean he is to be perfect in the sense we would normally use the word. It means he's, he is to be a man of integrity, a man wholeheartedly committed to his God, like Leland Wong. He's not to be a hypocrite. He is to love God, trust God, worship God from the inside out. And his outward actions are to flow from that inward trust in God. He is to walk before him and be blameless. We've heard that Latin phrase, corum Deo, which means that we're to live before the face of God, under the eyes of God, under the gaze of God. And that's what God is saying to Abraham, walk before me, live under my gaze and serve me. Do not be hypocritical, do not be half-hearted. Is God the main thing in your life or is he just an adult? 
Candlish, Robert Candlish says, to walk before God is to walk or live as if in his sight. And under his special inspection, to realise at all times his presence and his providence are there. To feel his open and unslumbering eye ever upon us. To walk thus before God is impossible if there, not be, if there be not redeeming love on his part, apprehended by faith on our part, to be perfect, guileless and upright. Is thus walking before God is the great duty of the believer and only the believer can discharge that duty. You cannot walk before God with a whole heart if you're not trusting in him. The only people who can walk before God with integrity are those who believe. Another commentator said God required that Abraham live a life that was pleasing to him in order that he need not fear being seen by his holy eyes. And Matthew Henry said, what God requires is that we should be to him, walk before me, upright and sincere, for herein the covenant of grace is well ordered, that sincerity is our gospel perfection. This is what God is saying, Abraham, walk before me, live before me in such a way that I can take pleasure in your living and be sincere in your trust of me wholehearted. The Lord gives Abraham two reasons why he should comply, why he should respond to the Lord in that way. He says, I am El Shaddai and I will establish my covenant. God gives Abraham his nature and he gives Abraham his covenant as the two reasons why Abraham should respond this way. In other words, God says to Abraham, trust in me, live before me because of who I am. I am the Almighty, I can do anything. I am not dependent on anyone and I have everything you need. Therefore you can trust me and walk before me with integrity. It's so necessary and so relevant to us today. God draws attention to who he is and then draws attention to his covenant that I may make my covenant between me and you. Abraham perhaps had forgotten the force of the vision that he had had in Genesis 15, when the God of heaven and earth came in the form of the smoking oven and the flaming torch and passed between those pieces. And God is, by saying, Abraham, I will establish my covenant with you, is saying, trust me, live before me because of who I am and what I have done. I have walked like a vassal before you, in order to confirm my covenant, the covenant I initiated. I did not have to do that. I wanted to do that. God calls us to faith. Consciousness of living before him. By encouraging us to look to him. And look at his covenant. We should never enter into the study of the Bible without going to the Bible and ask him, what does this teach me about my God? J.I. Packer said, that is the secret of soul-fattening Bible study. But it is more than that. We go to the scriptures to see what they teach us about God. Not whether they are relevant to us. Of course they're relevant to us. Saying that the scriptures are relevant to us is not saying too much. It's saying too little. Saying that the scriptures are relevant to us is saying like fuel is relevant to the running of a car. 
at least until 2040 anyway, and then it's electricity. But if I were to stand up here and give you a talk about the, how relevant it is of fuel to the running of a car, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say how profound. You would ask if I was feeling quite well, because of course it is relevant to running a car. The Bible is relevant to believers, but it's more than that, more than simply how the scriptures apply to us in our situation. We should ask, what do the scriptures teach us about God? God reveals him himself to us in the scriptures. And seeing the sight of God and the covenant he has made with us strengthens our faith then for the war that he has called us to. God revives our faith by revealing himself to us in his word. That's the first thing, verses 1 to 3. God revives our faith by revealing himself to us in his word. And it was a bit of an eye-opener for me. We sometimes go to the, to, you know, to the Bible to see, well, how can this help my situation? And of course that is right. But why not go and say, what does the Bible tell me about God? And then that, and then that strengthens our faith and gives us this hope that we've been singing about to carry on. So secondly, the renaming of Abraham, verses 4 to 8. God renames Abraham, calls him Abraham, in prospect of the fulfilment of his promises. He's, he's looking ahead in prospect of the fulfilment of his promises. He not only calls him Abraham, but he calls him Abraham. God it repeats and elaborates his promises to Abraham. So we see the repetition and the, specific, and the specification of God's promises. God is getting more specific in his promises. We learn a great lesson in verses 4 to 8. God revives our faith by setting before us his promises. And the promises are reiterated, emphasised and expanded. And there are six at least, but I've, I found six promises here. The first promise is verse 2 that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God promises he will firm up his covenant and he will multiply Abraham exceedingly. He's going to do something beyond Abraham's thinking. God is repeating that because Abraham thinks Ishmael is the way and God is saying my plan is bigger than you think. You're settling for something too small. That's the first promise. The second promise, God said that he will make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. We've just seen how Abraham might have been embarrassed by the name exalted father, Abraham. Verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be called Abraham. I will make you father of a multitude of nations. God, God had promised before a land to Abraham. Now he promises that he will make him a father of nations. So his name is changed. If he thought that name was too big, wow! Abraham's name is changed to Abraham. God has promised to make him the father of a multitude of nations. A third promise, verse 6. God will make Abraham the father of kings. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. He's already promised him land. He's all now promised him he'll be the father of nations. But not only that, the father of kings, in verse 6. 
The book of Genesis tells us that the Midianites and the Ishmaelites and the Edomites and the Israelites, their kings are descendants of Abraham. The fourth promise in verse 7, he will include Abraham's descendants in the covenant. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. The covenant is not only for Abraham, but for his descendants. The promise is not only to Abraham, but his children. The establishment of the covenant community. The fifth promise, verse 8, he will give the land to Abraham and his descendants. And the promise of land revisited, confirmed by the God of Abraham to Abraham. And, verse, and then six, the sixth promise in verse 8, God says, and I will be their God. God is pronouncing his own, I will. He is pronouncing his own, I do. I am going to be your God, Abraham, and the God of your spiritual descendants. I'm going to be their God. This is the greatest gift that could possibly be given. One commentator says, God not only gave many gifts of grace to Abraham, but he gave himself to his covenant people. And that's the reality of the covenant blessing. God's covenant people would not only be blessed by God, but would have God as their God. Matthew Henry says, He is enough to us if we be in covenant with him. We have all in him. And we have enough in him. Enough to satisfy our most enlarged desires. Enough to supply the defect of everything else and to secure to us a happiness for our more immortal souls. We see around us people who want, who are trying everything in order to be satisfied, to be happy. But satisfaction comes in knowing God. That is enough. So God holds up these promises and he says, Abraham, this is what I will do for you. The feast that I will spread for you and you've been thinking for the last 13 years that I have forgotten. Brothers and sisters, behold the promises, remember the promises, believe the promises. They are for us. Paul, the apostle, has his eye on God in this passage. He tells us three very, very important things. In the New Testament, Galatians 3, when we read in Genesis 17, Seven, that the covenant was with Abraham and his seed. We think of those who are naturally in the, seed, in the faith of Abraham. We think of the children of Israel. And it is not incorrect to do that. But Paul draws us to a sharp theological point when in Galatians 3.16 he says, The promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. What is Paul telling you that? That the promises God made to Abraham and his seed are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the inheritor of the promises of Abraham. So if you want part of the promises of Abraham's God, you must be in Christ. You must be united with him. You must be identified with Christ. You must have trusted in him 
and rested in him because of these promises that we have just enumerated belong to Christ and they're only enjoyed by those who trust in him. If you are in Christ, you are an heir of God's promises to Abraham. That's the first glorious theological point that Paul draws from Genesis 17. There's another, if you turn to Romans 4. Who is Abraham's seed? Who is the seed of Abraham? Paul tells us unequivocally, Christ. And we ask another question as we look at Genesis 17. We say, who are these nations that God promised Abraham to be a father of? Paul tells us in Romans 4.14, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. But when there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Paul makes it clear in Romans 4, this is fulfilled as the Jews who trust in Christ and the Gentiles who trust in Christ, the mediator of the covenant of grace which God has made with Abraham, that the Jews and the Gentiles would be the many nations. And out of all the nations of the earth, men, women, boys and girls, we brought and drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how he would be the father of many nations. Who are the nations? The spiritual family of those who believe from every tribe, tongue and nation. It is glorious. And the last question from Genesis 17 that Paul answers, if you look at Romans 4 verse 13, you see the answer to it. Well, what is the land? What is the land that was promised to Abraham? Abraham never possessed anything but his burial plot in the land of Canaan. Did God forfeit his promise to Abraham? Israel was lost to the Babylonians. Did God forfeit his promise to Abraham? Romans 4.13 For the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be heir of the world. The promise of God to Abraham for Canaan is transcended in the new covenant. That is hinted at when the land is lost in the exile. And the prophets began to think about what is God going to do in the new covenant. And Paul says... It is the world, the new heavens and the new earth. The humble shall inherit the world, literally. All who trust in the God of Abraham will become the possessors of the new heaven and the new earth in Christ. So God renames Abraham. He calls him Abraham, the father of many nations. I wonder what Abraham thought when he was given that title father of many nations well the new testament tells us that too revelation 7 verse 9 after this i looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, that is your future. Do you believe that? That is your future. That's why we have hope. We have hope for this week because that is our future. The multitude of nations surrounding the throne of the God of Abraham. The throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same as Abraham saw when he was called the father of nations. John confirms that in John 8. Because they said to Jesus, the Jews said to Jesus in John 8, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? In answer to that, amongst other things, Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. My dear friend, brothers and sisters, we must revive our faith. Revive our faith with a view of the promises of God to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And have a view of the glory to come. A view of the glory of the Saviour. I go back to my imagination, my musing. I imagined Abraham walking back to the tents that night. For 70 some years he had borne the name Abraham. And he'd borne the reproach of that name. For 13 years he'd had relief and one son. And now he went back to his tent to announce to his family unit, God has changed my name. Can you imagine the reaction of the family? Would they think that well, God would have been kind and given him a more appropriate name? And Abraham said, I've, the name, I'm going to be the father of many nations. Maybe you're here this morning. And you have a prayer which you think is hopeless. I don't know what your prayer is. El Shaddai is here. El Shaddai. The God of the Father of many nations. Your Father. Your Father, if you're in Christ. Your Father, Abraham. Behold his children. If you have a hopeless prayer this morning. Remember that El Shaddai is here. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.